Hello and welcome to episode 228 of What Most People Think and the autumn leg of my tour is finished now and it finished with me almost getting snowed in at Nutsford Travelodge and if anybody's seen the show that would have been quite poetic in a way because I talk a lot about Travelodges and motorway service stations. Maybe I'd have quite enjoyed it like sort of you know I'd have had everything that I needed in that place like sort of like Tom Hanks in the terminal you know a film where he has to just live in an airport terminal there'd be worse places to be and as I bring in my guest for this week the incredible broadcaster Ian Dale Ian firstly welcome back to the show thank you for having me again have you ever been stranded in the course of your work have you ever done a bit of planes trains automobiles I've been stranded at a drive-in where I felt a bit like a fool <laughs> you didn't get that did you I know I did I did I was <laughs> suddenly I moment you said felt like a fool a Greece reference just out of nowhere <laughs> I would imagine you would be Rizzo. I mean, no shade intended. Which one was she? She flirts with all the boys. Was she Stockard Channing? Yes, yeah. Yeah, no, I quite like Stockard Channing, yeah. Have I been stranded in a motorway services? No, I can't say I have. I mean, any sort of travel stuff? Because I also got the volcanic ash cloud. Do you remember that in 2010? I was stuck in Egypt, an all-inclusive resort. And everyone would say, oh, well, that's a touch. But there's something about the moment you have to be somewhere, it then felt like a bit like Groundhog Day, but with a sort of buffet breakfast. The only thing that springs to mind is I was in Miami Airport once and flying back to the UK, and I lost my boarding pass three times. I don't know how you managed to, anyone manages to do that. But when I went back to the check-in for the third time asking for a new boarding pass, I did think I would be arrested and put in Guantanamo or something. I do have lots of travel mishaps, but they generally involve driving up the A11 or not being able to drive up the A11 because the fucking highways agency has shut it. The A11, I always say this when I do gigs in Norwich, is it's not a road to be driven on. The people of Norwich do not wish for outsiders to come to it. Otherwise, they'd have a proper fucking motorway that takes you to the place. It's sort of like a challenge that you need to really want to be there. And the thing is, it's all my fault because back when I worked in Parliament in the 1980s for one of the Norwich MPs, I helped draft the campaign to duel the A11. I wish I hadn't bothered now. <laughs> you know your uh, boarding pass one? I had a real shocker. Was I at airport? This was also in Miami airport. Was I, I went through security, got my bags done, and then managed to somehow walk out of arrivals. I was very, very, I could say hungover. I was still drunk. So I walked out of arrivals. I thought, how the hell have I done that? I still don't know, really. And I went back round to the sort of departure gate and the security gate. And a guy there saw me, he recognised me, he said, but you've already been through. I was like, yeah. And in his mind, he was sort of trying to think, this must be terrorism, but everything about me suggested I wouldn't be organised enough to pull something like that off. And you see, you keep saying that you're very unmemorable, that you you haven't got a memorable face or anything, and yet you were recognised by a security guard twice. That must tell you something. Maybe they'd seen that picture of you that you posted on Twitter the other day where you look like a Hollywood hunk. Was there one that I posted of me looking like a Hollywood hunk? Well, it had clearly been photoshopped. Well, clearly. And there's also been this talk that I look like... Well, people were telling me I look like this Swedish guy in the new Netflix show, and then a few people said it, so I asked for a link. And this guy, honestly, I would wish that I looked like <laughs> It's so funny. What I think they mean is this guy also has sunken eyes. I think that's what they're really saying, is there's one small part of you. I think I'm definitely closer to the Brighton manager. So, yeah, with Ian today, we're going to be... 
sort of trying to get in early with a little kind of politics review of the year, just looking at the main parties, where they've been. As, as a jumping off point, we might use the Keir Starmer, putting a bit of love on Margaret Thatcher's name, which seems to come from nowhere. And we'll also, I'll be picking Ian's brain about the COVID inquiry, just seeing you know what he thinks about where it's going and where it's likely to go next. New Patreons. So we've got Jamie Shields again. So it's been the first of the month. So Patreon obviously always have to kick people out. So I know that I've said Jamie Shields' name before. If you want to get the podcast early, ad-free and with bonus content, then do go and join the Patreon. Just search Jeff Norcott on Patreon or what most people think. I think I did these names before, but I'm going to do them again just to be sure. We've got Dean Kerbride, Ian. Dean Kerbride. What kind of person is a Dean Kerbride? He is a Scottish League One footballer. Probably a winger that doesn't score as many goals as he should do. Yeah, we just uh, crossed the Hazel Irving there. Yes, Dean Kerbride just bundled <laughs> one in from close range against Stenhouse Muir. It was against the run of play. He was set up on the left by Jamie Shields. Jamie Shields <laughs> crossed it in. Dean Kerbride, I think it came off one of his balls. Helen Steer. I think we mentioned Helen Steer. I would probably have said that she sounded like the head of HR. So, yeah, that rings a bell for Helen Steer. Domain talking point. David Domain's got a couple of belt-in things for us this week. We speak about, like, when was the news cycle quiet or when was it quietest? A lot of people instinctively, I guess, would say in maybe sometime in the 90s, like late 90s. Would you concur with that? When it was its most benevolent. There was quite a lot going on in the 1990s, wasn't there? I'd say probably about 1954. Before series, Churchill had just left office, Eden had taken over, everyone was thinking this is going to be really good, and then he fucked it up in series. I, I think probably we have to go back that far. Pick a month, a month in 1954. Um, June. Mate, that is an absolute smasher of response there. It is April 1954. That is incredible. So David Domain says, if you want a quite a news cycle, the date to time travel back to is 11th of April, 1954. After feeding wow. 300 million facts into a new computer search engine, researchers found that there were no new key events or births and deaths of famous people on that death. So what? Wow. I, this was a quiz show right now. You'd be going in the Champions of Champions one. Well, I did win Celebrity Pointless once. I did well the first time I was on it. So we, we didn't win the overall, but we were in the final, me and Simon Evans. And that might have had something to do with it. I was with Simon <laughs> Evans. And then the two times I've been on it since then, I was on with Kerry Howard, where I gave a really good answer and she bombed out. So I was out in the first round. And then I was on with Danny John Jules from Red Dwarf. Same same thing. And you, the Richter screen that you have to do to pretend you're not furious about that fact is very hard to pull off. <laughs> Well, the secret there is don't go on with people that Ian Dale has never heard of. The the cat from Red Dwarf. I, I never watched Red Dwarf. I mean, it is a circuit, isn't it? The quizzes thing. I, I, I won tipping point during COVID, though. So it was weird. They had an audience in another room. So they said, we've got 10 people here to give us an idea of what's funny. But they're in a room 50 metres away watching. So I just had this idea of, you know, one of those really bleak 1950s style experiments. Yeah, I'm really pissed off that I've never been invited on Tipping Point, seeing as I see Ben Shepherd every Friday morning on Good Morning Britain. But the, the only other one I've done was Eggheads, which the lesson I learned from that was that you really have to push yourself forward and make sure you choose a subject that you want and not mm. be polite and let the others do it. So of course, I did that and then got the subject that I was weakest on and yeah, didn't do very well. It's like when Nigel Farage says, all about screen time, baby. 
David Domain also says that Glühwein means glow wine in German. And I was talking about words that don't sound like what they are. He says that phonophysia is the consideration of how words sound and what they mentally conjure up. But there's no word, right? This is the thing, Ian. I think I could make up a word here is because there's no word that describes an ill-fitting sounding word for something, right? So I'll give you an example. I don't think gazebo sounds like what a gazebo is. A gazebo sounds like an exotic animal. I also don't think mezzanine sounds like a middle floor. I think it sounds like a drug from the 1970s. Does that make sense to you? So you basically want every word to be on a matapeic. Uh, yes, a little bit on a matapeic, but I honestly think I've got a gap in the market for a word. So can I claim it? You know, like when um, these uh, explorers find a new beetle and then they call it like the Steve beetle. Can I call this a Norcottism? <laughs> there must be other things that have been called that over the years. <laughs> Just chatting partially informed shit on politics shows. Exactly, exactly. You <laughs> see, the Germans would have a word for this. And I, I used to speak completely fluent German, but unfortunately I can't make one up because I haven't, my German's sort of gone a bit now, but... They just put words together. So you have this word that's about 40 characters long and they would be able to do it for you. How come you spoke German? Was that just something you chose to do or was it a, a lifestyle thing? It was the only thing I was actually quite good at at school. I went on a school exchange trip to Germany and came back and then got top of the class in the end of year exams. The teacher thought I'd cheated. And mm. I went on to study German at university, lived in Germany for a couple of years and was so fluent that no German knew I was English. But no longer the case, I'm afraid. I mean, yeah, your name would have been annoyingly short for them, Ian Dale. They're like, fuck it, please put some more syllables in it, for God's sake. Johannes Thal. <laughs> Good to do a thank you and a fuck you. Ian is going to handle the fuck you. I'll do the thank you. Uh, for people buying the book, it seems that we've got into Christmas gifting season and the British bloke decoded has been shooting up the charts. And by I say shooting, I mean moving a bit. But just a reminder that the book is it's sticking up for blokes, really. We've had a few... Tough years in the old share price, taking a bit of a battering. But it's just essentially talking about our behaviours, explaining them, having a laugh on the way and talking about some of the more serious stuff. And I would say that, you know, I think that if you like this podcast, you're going to enjoy the book. And it is, I've been saying, it's a very easy, lazy Christmas gift choice. While I'm doing that, Ian, is there any books that you want to uh, shamelessly flog in this section? Strangely, Jeff, there is, and it makes an even better Christmas gift than yours. It's my latest book called Kings and Queens, and it profiles in essay form, 64 monarchs going back to King Alfred the Great. So if you've got a relative that likes a bit of history, that likes the monarchy, it's the ideal book for Christmas. You know, because I've been on TikTok too much, watching too much Gen Z stuff. When you said kings and queens, I was thinking of, you know, like, hey, slay queen or, yeah, man, you absolute king. I thought it was just you basically paying tribute to legends of pop culture. Which illustrates why I don't use TikTok. Yes, Ed, nobody should use TikTok. It's evil. The fuck you, Ian. Over to you. The fuck you is book reviewers, Jeff, which you may agree with on this, depending on what kind of reviews your book has had. Because mm. I'm sick of these poncy book reviewers who never actually mention the book in their review. They just review what they think of the author. So take, <laughs> yes. for example, Nadine Doris's book, The Plot, which if you've read it, you will know that it's actually quite good. She writes well. She puts her case quite well. And it actually informs you about why Boris Johnson was overthrown. And yet, if you read the reviews, they just think, oh, well, she writes these sort of lovely novels about Liverpool, so she can't possibly write about politics. Well, she can, and it's a bloody good read. But none of the reviews, I don't think any of the reviews have actually read a word of the book. 
So I hate book reviewers, even though I'm one myself sometimes. I think that there is definitely a thing in all reviewing of going, what was I expecting to read? What was I hoping to read? And that can be positive or negative. You know, I had a review earlier this year of the live show where the guy who came along, it was on the same night as I got a really good review. I also got quite a sniffy one. And the guy came along and it was like he expected me to pretend to be an edgelord, right? Like I was going to go out there and tell dark jokes and be provocative. And then when I wasn't that, that sort of pissed him off. And then he seemed to like me. And then the fact that he seemed to like me pissed him off a bit. So I try not to think that, you know, when I... When I go and see a film, like, for example, I, I love going and watching kids' films with my son and then reading whatever The Guardian has said. It's fucking hilarious. <laughs> Their review earlier this year of the Super Mario film was a one-star review, and it basically sort of said, yeah, well, kids like it, but is that really the point? And you're like, um, yeah, 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 that is yeah. that is a million percent the point. What most people think. Okay, let's start that sort of politics review and we'll start off with talking about my favourite, my pet subject, Keir Starmer. So, over the weekend, Keir Starmer in The Telegraph, he sort of tried to situate himself because people are starting to say, well, what will a Keir Starmer premiership be like. And he kind of picked three prime ministers, didn't he? He picked Blair, he picked Attlee, and then he picked Margaret Thatcher. And it was a bit of a surprise. I guess he was obviously trying to curry favour in the Telegraph. And he sort of sort of said Thatcher's name in relation to kind of picking Britain up out of the doldrums and releasing kind of individual entrepreneurial spirit. It was an interesting shout, Ian Dale. Uh, what did you think about it? The words of Senator Lloyd Benson, I knew Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher was a friend of mine. Sakir, you're no Margaret Thatcher. I thought it was the most bizarre thing to do. Because if you think about it, Jeff, if you're a, if you're a Thatcherite and you, you love everything about Margaret Thatcher, just because the leader of the opposition says something vaguely nice about her, does that make you more likely to vote for him? No, it doesn't. So you think, well, why did he do it? Because effectively, he pissed off everyone left of Tony Blair in the Labour Party. Mm. It's a, just a slightly odd thing to do. Now, if you're, if you're going for the Tony Blair and Gordon Brown playbook, obviously they greased up to her. She was still alive then. Gordon Brown and Tony Blair invited her into Downing Street on various occasions. But that was then and this is now. And if you think about it, if you're under the age of, I don't know, 45, do you even remember Margaret Thatcher in power? Because she's been out of power for 33 years now. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a very good point because it does in a way, you know, if, we, if there's a review element to this chat, is it sort of epitomises what he spent the last 18 months doing. As I've been saying on tour, he sort of inherited a poll lead like a surprise inheritance off a mad uncle with syphilis, right? That just landed <laughs> in his lap. And then he really hasn't spent much of it setting out an agenda and it's just been trying to get as much, as high a poll lead as possible. And I suppose the calculation is that people's desire to GTTO, get the Tories out, is so great that all he needs to do is get as much of the rest as possible. But there is a problem where you get to a point where it's just like, oh, I'm hanging out with my new mates. You know, when you know when a friend has new mates and then they start changing to be more like them and then there comes a point where you go, are you just more like them? Because there's a lot of um, Labour MPs that have obviously passionately wanted to be in power. There must be questions being asked now in the PLP. But you see, this fits a narrative. If you look at what he said about immigration, 
he's tried to be more right-wing than the Tories, which, let's face it, is quite difficult. It was at least when Suella Braverman was there. He was saying, oh, the Tories have failed. Oh, I can't do an impression. You'll have to keep doing that. Nor can I this morning, it seems, either. <laughs> <laughs> the Tories have failed on immigration. They've got to get the numbers down. Well, you know, those of us who think that immigration is by and large a good thing think, well, why is it that no politician on the left and right can actually explain why immigration is a good thing? It's left to the likes of pundits to do that, which is a disgrace when you think about it, because politicians are there to lead, not just follow public opinion all the time. You look at his stance on Israel, which I happen to think is right, but again, he's almost outgunning the pardon the phrase, outgunning the government mm. on Israel and Gaza. And sometimes I think the electorate or voters start to think, well, if I kind of want a Tory, let me vote for the real thing rather than somebody who's trying to pretend to be one. I mean, that is the Tories, if they need a slogan, if you want a Tory, then why not just vote for the real thing? Do it like one of those 80s adverts for yeah. for Gillette. Why not just vote for the real thing and then just have like the poshest looking bloke with the sort of clearest kind of porcelain aristocratic skin? <laughs> just go, yeah, we're exactly what you fucking think we are. I mean, that <laughs> that is, I mean, there's another slogan as well. That could work. We're exactly what you think we are. Because they're all trying to be quite sort of nicey-nicey, aren't they, compared to those awful bastard Tories. But actually, if you look back in history, the electorate rather like voting for bastard Tories. Well, I suppose if the idea is that they will act in a way that, that as Starmer says, unleashes individual potential, you need to believe that they can act with self-interest on some level. But I think, you know, one of the problems in what Starmer's doing is he's sort of drawing attention to what establishment-style figures you have at the, in the two main roles in the Labour Party. You've got Keir Starmer, who was the, what was it, the Queen's QC? QC, he was the head of director, he was the director of public prosecutions. I mean, I take the piss out of him for saying it all the time, and I've just forgotten what it was. So maybe there's a reason why he says it. And then you look at Rachel Reeves herself, who worked for big banks and worked at the Bank of England. So the degree of separation, you know, isn't quite as great as it has been even in the past. Even somebody like Ed Miliband sort of seemed a more detached figure from the establishment, obviously Corbyn well, did. Well, up to a point, because I can throw Angela Rayner back at you, I can throw Johnny Reynolds back at you, I can throw Wes Streeting back at you. They're, they're not exactly establishment figures, are they? No, but they are not the two most powerful in the party either, I suppose. And and it does seem, you know, with recent, you know, Angela Rayner does seem to be getting sidelined a bit. Actually, that's a good point to talk about. Is there is there a problem there? Because she, I saw she did a couple of articles recently where she said, you know, it can't just be like Lords of Keir Starmer's <laughs> in the article. And there was a, a period of about a year ago where they were trying to Adam and Eva in the Garden of Eden. Oh, Keir and Angela, it's all sweetness and light. They're cracking gags, bringing each other tea. And then she's felt like less of an important figure in Starmer's Labour Party recently. Is there a potential problem there? I think there was a problem. I think it's actually the reverse of what you just said. I think it's less so now. I think she and Keir have reached a bit of a mutual understanding and I think he appreciates what she can bring to the party, maybe in a way that he didn't before. So I don't think we're going to see a lot of fireworks between those two because they, they both know that they are reliant on each other to an extent. I mean, one of the things he's done recently is he just says phrases of things that he wants the Labour Party to be. So he say things like, with a party of working people, with a party of home ownership and 
Or you say the key, you can't just keep saying we're the party of stuff without underlying any sort of policy basis for how you're going to achieve this. Is yeah, we're the party of really nice chocolate. We're the party. He just keeps laying out all the things that he wants the Labour Party to be a part. Look, I'm the comedian of funky one-liners. I'm not, but just because I said it doesn't mean I am. When is the point, right, where this has to transition from saying what he wants the Labour Party to be to policies that will achieve that? I mean, how close? To an election, do you think he'll run this sort of relying on the poll lead and just vague, airy-fairy, aspirational quotes? They'll do that for as long as they can get away with it. Um, I have Rachel Reeves do a monthly phone-in on my show, and it's like getting blood out of a stone, getting her to commit to anything. But there was a chink of light this week. Johnny Reynolds, the Shadow Business Secretary, who I think is one of the best in the Shadow Cabinet, he came in for an hour to talk about they, they'd launched a new small business strategy. I'm not very exciting, you might think, but there was actually quite a lot of detail to it. So they're starting to show a little bit of leg now rather than just a little bit of ankle. But in terms of major policies, I suspect they'll go as close to the election as they can before they reveal anything. Because as soon as they do, obviously the Tories are going to jump on it. They're going to cost it. They're going to say, well, how are you going to pay for it? And if you go back to election campaigns over the past few decades, that's the playbook. As soon as Labour reveal policies, the Tories question about how they're going to pay for it, or they're going to put your taxes up. Remember 1992, the tax bombshell? I've just been writing about the 1959 election because I am a very sad git. And again, (laughs) in that, it was exactly the same all those years ago that Labour would come up with a proposal and the Tories would trash it by saying, well, how are you going to pay for it? So, yeah, I guess they're going to just try and tiptoe all the way. I mean, I suppose what happened in 2017 was I remember there was a lot of frustration on the left about Corbyn being shit at PMQs. I mean, it's it's, it's easy to forget just how bad Corbyn was at PMQs. Do you remember the first time he he read out a letter from a constituent? And it was like, oh, well, this is sort of refreshing. And he's like, oh, fuck, that's all he's going to do, man. (laughs) I've had a letter from Marjorie. And going, what's this? Is this points of view or something? What the fuck? I thought he was hosting an LBC phone-in for a moment. (laughs) Let's go to Emma in Brentwood. <laughs> he did ne- not nearly enough charisma, mate. Let's go to to uh, no. I was gonna I was gonna do a joke about. Uh, I was gonna say let's go to Emma in Tehran. Um, yeah, <laughs> let's leave that in. That's fine. That's fine. They tried to get rid of him. Obviously, uh, a really bungled attempt to to get rid of him. But then there was when that manifesto dropped for the 2017 election. People liked it. I remember it, it was because they hadn't heard a British political party for a long time, talk about lots of left-wing things. So is there a chance that sort of Starmer could just alienate the left, alienate the left, and then by the time the manifesto comes out, if it's just slightly more left-wing than being a diet Tory, he might be all right? Who knows? I mean, the, the success of that 2017 manifesto, even though, let's remember, they lost, the success of that was all about the fact that it was leaked before it officially came out. And I can remember that day doing a phone-in on it on LBC and then extending it to a second hour, and then extending it to a third hour. And not once in those hours did we get anybody calling in who criticised it. They all thought it was Mm. fantastic. And I thought I was living in a parallel universe. Then the Tory one came out about a week later, and you couldn't get anyone to phone in to agree with it. it. It was just the most remarkable thing. So whoever leaked that for Labour, to this day we don't know who it was, whoever did that did them a great service. I think what what was always interesting, we just sort of we've drifted into remembering the Corbyn years for some reason. But um, the 2019 election, I always thought it was the weirdest thing that it was the most obvious thing that there was going to be a snap election. It had been obvious for months. All they needed was to just get the parliamentary maths right. And yet, when it happened, the Labour Party was so not ready to fight an election. Now I know that 
that that would have been because of internal wranglings and disenchantment with Corbyn's leadership. But they had like, it was the opposite of 2017. They had a bad manifesto. They didn't have a good slogan. I remember the one in slogan was um, for the many. I mean, they nicked it off your podcast, but the for the many. And then I think it was in 2019, it was something like it's time for a change, which sort of sounds like the kind of way they try and get you to switch energy suppliers. It wasn't the kind of <laughs> slogan that gets a go. Have you got any inside intel as to why they were caught napping so much in 2019? Have you heard of a guy called Andrew Fisher? He was director of policy for Corbyn. And I think before that election, he was sort of edged out in some way. And although he did come back from the election, I don't think he had been there when they were doing, I mean, if they did do any strategizing, he wasn't there. And he's a very clever guy. He's now sort of only living as a political commentator, very good he is too. But I think he wasn't around. So the manifesto certainly wasn't as tight as it was. And do you remember, the election was two weeks before Christmas. And in the last 10 days or so, it was like Corbyn and McDonald were playing Santa and one day, oh, we're going to give you a lovely Christmas present. You're all going to get free broadband. First of all, people thought, that's nice. And then yeah. the next day, oh, we're going to spend £50 billion on X, Y, or Z. That sounds good, people thought. But then by the time you got to day 10, even the most diehard left-winger was thinking, well, how the fuck are they going to pay for all of that? I think, was it, was it five new bank holidays as well or something? Yeah, yeah. I remember the polling was so flawed because they said people like these policies. They might do, but they don't think you should do them all at the same time, mate. You know, it's that you could have done another poll, which is do people like free stuff? Yeah, they generally do. Do people also think that sometimes you have to pay for stuff back and it might end up costing more in the long run? Yes, also yes to that. So as we've used Keir Starmer's surprise reference to Margaret Thatcher as a jumping off point to review the year, I also think, in credit to Starmer, I thought of PMQs last week, that was about the best he's ever looked at PMQs, actually. I mean, he's always at his best when he's telling people off. We remember this through Partygate because he's he's a lawyer, right? So when he goes, no, sorry, you said this when he's picking people apart. No, that's absolute bollocks, right? That is when he's absolutely at home. And he had a really good outing at PMQs. And one of the things that I thought, was that the Tory MPs behind Rishi Sunak looked so pissed off. They've known the game is up for a while, but it just felt like it really crystallised. Like, we're never going to get out of this, right? If we have a budget that gives the people something that they like, then there'll be migration figures afterwards. Then there'll be James Cleverly being alleged to have called a place a shithole, right? It just, it looked like the beginnings of the death rattles. And then similarly, the polls last week put him not much further ahead of where the Tories were when Liz Truss left. I mean, that in itself, Ian, is quite damning, isn't it? I think there are a lot of people in Number 10 who just don't understand why the polls haven't shifted. You, you and I might be able to tell them. But there is a huge <laughs> amount of frustration. And I think there's frustration among Tory MPs with Rishi Sunak personally and that he hasn't quite turned out to be the change that they all thought or some of them thought they were going to get. Because... In effect, he's not really a politician. He's a project manager. And he mm. doesn't get the politics of it all. I mean, this thing with the Greek prime minister this week, I'm still scratching my head and thinking, well, how did that happen? Because at least when Boris Johnson was there, he did have people who would stand up to him and say, stop being a prick, just do it. And what I hear is that nobody stands up to Rishi Sunak. Nobody tells him the truth. 
And you think, well, he's got his best friend, James Forsyth, as his political secretary. Surely your best friend can tell you when you're doing something wrong, but apparently not. I mean, that is funny. Nobody stands up to Rishi Sunak, the fearsome, imposing, <laughs> sort of terrifying dictator Rishi Sunak. That is really surprising and funny to hear. I mean, one of the things that I thought was that if you already look like um, the prime minister who most resembles an eight-year-old boy, don't have an argument over marbles because it just <laughs> there was something like fundamentally fucking schoolboyish about, about the whole thing. It looked, again, Star was on full catty mode when he said it was small politics and it reminded me of when, you know, in Shrek, when they take the piss out of Lord Farquhar with a, a, a series of puns about how small he is. I mean, let's just remember that Keir Starmer himself, I think, is about 5'7 or 5'8. So. Yeah, he's a lot smaller than you think, because I, I think people imagine him as being quite a tall guy. It's been like people thought Margaret Thatcher was six foot tall. She was five foot four. And Starmer, when you meet him, he hasn't got that presence that, I mean, like Reagan had, for example. I mean, I think he was about six foot two. And I always remember when I interviewed him on the Edinburgh Fringe, not this year, but last year. Ronald Reagan? No, not Ronald. (laughs) Now, that would have been something, wouldn't it? Jesus, yeah. He turned up. And okay, it's the Fringe, but he wants to be Prime Minister. He turned up in a polo shirt, blue trousers. Problems? What's wrong with that? Because he wants to be Prime Minister. If you want to be Prime Minister, you need to look like a future Prime Minister. And I thought, mate, you've really misread the room here. And I think a lot of people in the audience thought that was just odd. Well, he looked like me, or I looked like him. Well, I was going to say that, but thought that might be No, weird. no, I, I thought it was funny at the time because a lot of people pointed it out to me. So I did a tweet at the time saying, who wore it best? And luckily there was a – because you had an amazing photographer from your event, yeah. some of the best photos I've ever had of myself. And it was me and Keir Starmer wearing the same outfit, doing the same <laughs> hand gesture. I was like, that bitch stole my look. Brittany Rishi, speaking of Brittany bitch – I've got this theory that Rishi is like Britney Spears in that he just keeps having these costume changes in him. So it's worth remembering that even in the space of a year, he's done Ulez Rishi, he's done Change Rishi, he's done Brighter Decisions for a Bigger Future Rishi, and then he brought back David Cameron. It's it's like, oops, I did it again. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is Rishi. He... Do you remember Tony Benn used to say, look, there are two sorts of politicians, weather vanes and signposts. Mm. And the weather vane politician just goes with whichever direction the wind's blowing in. And I'm afraid it looks as if Rishi Sunak is one of those politicians. Whereas the signposts, they set a course and they lead people in that direction. I don't think that is Rishi Sunak, I'm afraid. But aren't they all like that a bit now? This is what I wonder. Obviously, we had the influence for a long time of rolling news on politics and then we had social media and I I just wonder if it's even possible these days you know with focus groups with increased polling you know there only used to be a couple of pollsters for a long time and now there's multiple whether it's impossible to create the weather as a politician anymore I mean when Boris got in one of the things that 2019 Tory voters thought was like great we'll finally have a political party that will get themselves off Twitter and just set policy and they were among the worst for it Yes. The thing that Boris Johnson had in his favour, I mean, there were many things, but the the main one was that he promised to get Brexit done. And he did deliver on that, sort of. I won't say 2019 was a one-issue election, but it was a very different election from the Mm. norm. And so he was able to attract all these people that never voted Tory before in their lives. And they were actually voting for him personally, or they were voting to get Brexit done. So I'm not sure how much we can read across 2019 into the next election. But when you're a prime minister or leader of the opposition, 
you've got to be able to communicate what you're going to be doing for the next five years because there's no, no thanks in politics. People never thank a political party for what they've done over the previous five years, and they certainly won't be doing that this time. And I think that's a really difficult thing for the Tories to do. It's not like in in 1987, Thatcher had this phrase, the next moves forward. And on virtually every policy area, they had an innovative new policy area, even though they'd been in government for eight years. Well, okay, they will have been in government for 14 years. So I suppose it's, it's a little bit more difficult. But if you said to me, you know, what are going to be the, the five main Tory pledges at the next election? I'm not sure I could come up with five. We're less than a year out. As Linton Crosby always used to say, you can't fatten the pig on market day. You've got to give the electorate a sense of what you're going to do. Now, Starmer comes under criticism because he hasn't given any detail of the different policies. But people have got a vague idea of where Labour want to go. I don't think they have with the Conservatives. Just to finish off this politics section, Ian, it's the thing that all political pundits must do now. When's the election going to be? I think that the, there are two dates that it's narrowing down to, either May or June next year or November or December next year. And you might think, well, why on earth would they have another December election? Because they did quite well in the last one, I suppose, is the answer <laughs> yeah, to that. Yeah. I think it's unlikely to be September, October, because that would mean cancelling the party conferences. Although there was a story this week that said the Tories were actually looking to do that anyway. I think that would be a bit of an odd thing to do because it is such a money spinner for all the different parties. Yeah, If you wanted to pin me down, I think I would say November, December. November. This I've still got this hunch for May. I don't know why. But yeah, December. I mean, if you think how the recent Tory party conferences has gone, I think they should just probably cancel their conferences full <laughs> stop. Just for a while, until it blows over there. <laughs> okay, we're just going to do a quick hype. Obviously, I've wrapped up the tour for this year, but I am going out on plenty of tour dates. In, on tour in 24 is the way I'm trying to sell it, so it sticks in your brain. I am going to quickly try and rattle through some of the venues here, like the T's and C's. You know when they do, on the adverts, they do the bit at the end? Arroway. Maidenhead, Kings Lynn, Aldershot, Trings, Stroud, Grimsby, Chorley, Mansfield, Peterborough, Bromsgrove, Derby, Kendall, Lancaster, Middlesbrough, Newport, two Tukes. Oh, okay, that's as far as I could get. There's 40 venues uh, next year, including Dublin in April. I'm going to crew for the first time, literally in my life. It might be the first and the last, but let, let's see if we can debunk. <laughs> Don't slag off the place, Jeff. I always end up doing this, Ian. You do. I mentioned tour day, and then I end up slagging off the region. I love. I love this country. I mean, when James Cleverly said what he said about Stockton, I was like, look, I had a really nice tour. I had a really nice tour show there. However, did I get in the car quite quickly afterwards? Yes, I did. But that doesn't mean that they're not good people. What is the most shithole place in the UK that you've ever been to? I mean, for me, it's more about, see, I don't, if a, if a place doesn't have natural beauty, I don't mind that because sometimes I think there's there's a beauty in bleakness, if you know what I mean. That's a odd thing to say. It's just when places don't have any identity. Like, I don't get a sense of the place. And this will probably shoot myself in the foot, but Southampton. I just, whenever I go to Southampton, I'm like, what is Southampton? I don't get it. It's the birthplace of our prime minister. I mean, that really doesn't, that sort of furthers. I mean, you, we put ambiguity on ambiguity there. All right, so Southampton is a shape-shifting, <laughs> directionless. But, you know, I'm sure, look, I went to Hedge End, and that is a suburb of Southampton. That was about as close as I could cope with being. In terms of hyping stuff, I am due to be, as long as the trains don't thwart me, on cross-question this week. You are. Yes, good panel. I mean, it's always a great panel. We have 
Robert Courts, the former transport minister, Afra Hagen, commentator, and someone from Labour who they haven't actually told us who it's going to be yet. Some Labour bloke slash bird. There you go. That is what's officially on the... Yeah, probably bird, because we do like to have a gender balance panel. Just on the, the subject of the word bird, is that word okay again? Because I've, no. I've noticed it coming back into usage, is it, and it's not okay, is it, no? No, no. But you can do it because you can get away with it. But I've got this argument that it's like of, when you look at all the horrible misogynistic trolling, I think there's a revisionism around bird, but you go, you know what? That's not the worst word. Birds are beautiful. Birds take flight. Birds have been caged in the... <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop digging. Yeah, I think you should because sparrows are not beautiful. But then they don't really exist anymore, do they? Do you remember when we were young? Mm. There was like there millions of them. You don't see a sparrow anymore, do you? But fucking magpies everywhere, feeding yeah. bastards. Global warming. Global boiling. <laughs> COVID inquiry. So we have had, I should say, we have had issues with uh, the Wi-Fi connection. So we're going to try and rattle through the next couple of things just to get Ian's thoughts on this. I mean, I, as somebody who was mildly on the lockdown sceptic side, uh, you were somebody, I, I, this is at a guess, but you were very, not pro it, but you understood why the government did what they did. Yeah. What are your sort of top line thoughts on how this inquiry has been going so far? Well, if the inquiry is meant to get to the bottom of how it happened, why it happened, and what lessons we can learn from the future, I'm not sure they're doing a very good job. They're doing a fantastic job in providing us with lots of political tittle-tattle, which we all mm. enjoy, but I'm not sure that's the point of it. I think in Matt Hancock's evidence, the lawyer who was questioning him, who I thought was really irritating, the judge in charge, what is it, Baroness Hallett, mm. she actually told him off for saying, look, we're not interested in this, move on. And I think there's going to be quite a lot of that in the Boris Johnson evidence as well, which is coming up this week. What do you think is it Hugo Keefe, isn't it, KC? Yeah. And certainly in the first weeks where we had the big hitters on, there was this, he seemed to be surprisingly drawn to the WhatsApps with the best swear words in. It has felt tonally, I mean, we all perceive bias, right? But you do feel that you kind of get, what Hugo Keith thinks already about the Conservative government at that time. Now, maybe it's impossible over a period of time to not let your own bias come out, but that really is a bit of a failure of service given what his job is supposed to be. Well, I thought the evidence given by some of the previous witnesses, uh, for, I mean, like Dominic Cummings or whatever, they all set Matt Hancock to be up as the full guy. And mm. if they, I don't know whether it was Hugo Keith that was questioning Hancock, but if it was, I don't think that he made his case very well. And I thought Hancock, I only saw the first day's evidence, I didn't see the second day, but I thought Hancock did a pretty robust job of defending some of the decisions that he made. Now, nobody's got any sympathy for Matt Hancock, and I suspect there will be a lot of criticism of him in the final report. But I mean, clearly Boris Johnson's evidence is key here. And it seems from what we've read in the Sunday papers that he has done a huge amount of preparation for this. And it's going to be very interesting to see what attitude he takes. Is there going to be any contrition? Is there going to be some sort of apology for one or two of the things that he did? Are we going to learn anything new? You would hope that we would, but it's going to be fascinating to watch, isn't it? I mean, what you just said there was interesting where you said uh, Boris has done a lot of homework for this. 
I think many people, if you talk about what most people think, will think, well, better late than never, eh? <laughs> Finally, he's done some preparation for stuff. I mean, I have to agree with you what you said about Matt Hancock. This is controversial take of the year. Matt Hancock was actually pretty solid, man. Like, he'd done the work. He was across it. He had answers. There was some stuff where the guy did skewer him, to use an overused word, where I think Hancock was trying to say that he'd um, encouraged the Prime Minister the night before to go early with the lockdown. But there was no evidence for that whatsoever. And then the following day, there was evidence for the fact that he hadn't done that. You could just tell, like, Matt, you're lying, son. Yeah, all right, Matt, good, but but it's it's a lie. And, And Hugo Keefe does have this irritating habits but one of the ones that did make me laugh is when he's getting frustrated with people he says forgive me and what that really means is well that was bollocks but he can't say that obviously (laughs) in an inquiry and with with Hancock there was a spell and and forgive me Mr Hancock but yeah I thought Hancock was pretty good Michael Gove is always good I think Michael Gove is one of those guys that when he retires from frontline politics you know, like with an Aussie batsman that everyone loved to hate, whether it's David Warner or Ricky Ponting, the moment they're in the pundits booth, you go, this guy is, a, he's just, he's so smart and together. And it was at that point that we finally uh, lost Ian Dale. We've basically, this episode, we've started it and restarted it about four times. You know, he's living out there in the fens of North Norfolk. Probably some people get annoyed. They go, they aren't in North Norfolk. But this is the problem. See, you know, you live in this beautiful part of the world, but there's, I think they're still doing dial-up out there. It's the A11 thing, isn't it? They don't wish to be found. But just to, just to round off that point about Michael Gove, there you go. Is that like the take of the week? Is that Michael Gove is essentially... He's the David Warner of politics. His opponents have loved to hate him during his career. But if he was to just do a shot, people would love him. Like he's such a, maybe I'm sticking up for him because I know that he likes getting on the smash at daytime raves. Okay, so unfortunately, all of which means that there's no Patreon-only section um, this week because we did have questions from the board member patrons for Ian, but um, sadly we weren't able to get to those. But the good news is, is because of the adverts and because of our wonderful patrons, that we will have a breaking news later this week. So we were talking about Boris Johnson's testimony at the inquiry. We're looking to have that up by Friday lunchtime. I mean, let's be honest, there's every chance that Boris will still be on the middle of his first sentence by then. (laughs) At that point, Mr. Johnson, forgive me. Let's do a, a drinking game whereby every time Hugo Keith KC says, forgive me, every time you do that, you drink or just inject yourself with heroin. And <laughs> right, just we got one new review for the podcast. It'd be nice to have some more new reviews. Remember, it keeps it high in the old algorithms and stuff. It's a five-star review, but it says, in the interest of balance, after Konstantin Kissing was on, is Vladimir Lenin on next week? Is the implication there that Konstantin is somehow far right? I mean, this is the current political landscape that we're in, is that um, I think that that's what that person meant. Anyway, so, but look, I don't think that Konstantin is anything like far right. But yeah, I can confirm that Vladimir Lenin is on next week. I don't know what his internet connection is going to be like from the afterlife. I'm told that it's still going to be slightly better than the internet connection in Norwich. (laughs) 